Private Moritz, Private Moritz, look at me. It's, uh, it's uh, Commander Villiers. Uh, where? Moritz, you've had your on? mind scrambled by a long-range torture gun. Torture gun? But it, I, I thought... You probably feel like you've been tortured for about 10,000 years. It, it wasn't real? It's, I can't... I'm, who did this to me? It was the Dominator Collectivate, kid. We're at Mind War against them for the Alpha Centauri system. Oh, right. Mind War. I remember now. I, uh... Here, come this way. We're bringing you to get some medical attention. We got this new experimental program where in order to undo the effects of torture, formerly tortured people are exposed to extremely good interviews uh, on comedy podcasts with intellectuals, artists, a little bit of comedy sketches, kind of a variety show thing. Oh, that sounds uh, soothing. Yeah, it's not only soothing, but it undoes the effects of torture, it turns out. You know, fun fact, even though it's the year 24,600 AD, their Patreon at patreon.com slash seriouslywrong is still open. So people can pay $6 to access the whole archive. I personally pay a little extra to be credited at the end of the cartoons they make. So just put in the earbuds and just... Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. Feel all, uh, the torture recede. They can just press play here. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. Today, we are joined by Corey Doctorow, the author of a number of books, but most recently, The Internet Con, and his new book is The Lost Cause, which is a fiction book, a science fiction, social fiction book about a future where there is a Truth and Reconciliation Commission with white nationalism in the context of a Green New Deal. Really fascinating, fun, interesting book. Both books, actually, really interesting. The Internet Con uh, with Verso is a nonfiction book about how we can seize the means of computation. So uh, thanks for joining us here today, Corey. Thanks for having me on. You know, the, some of the germ of Lost Cause comes from your guys' shows about library socialism. So it's only fitting that we, I come on and talk about this. Yeah, that is really, really cool and flattering, and it's a great book. So yeah, really pleased with that association. What I'd like to maybe start with, before we talk about this new book, which uh, you're now kickstarting the audiobook for, I want, I want to dive a little bit into some of the nonfiction political writing you've been doing over the last couple of years. I've been really kind of devouring your arguments in choke point capitalism with co-author Rebecca Giblin. She's great. And in the Internet Con and a couple articles you've written about uh, in shittification, which is a term that you coined. Maybe actually, let's start with that one. What is in shittification and how does it connect to our experience as web users? Yeah, it's a term I coined to describe the kind of decay path of how platforms go rotten. And that's important because platforms are like the endemic form of business to the internet, which is a bit ironic, given that when the internet was started, we were all very excited about disintermediation and the idea that we get rid of intermediaries and we could communicate with each other person to person or 
performer to audience or community members directly or customers and businesses, and we wouldn't have to go through all these middlemen. And we did, in fact, use the internet to destroy a bunch of those middlemen, and uh, then we created a whole bunch of new ones. <laughs> and so we have re-intermediated the disintermediated internet. And the same conditions that allowed that to happen also caused those platforms to decay. And, and I'll say here that one important point of this critique is that I don't think that the people that we have now are worse than the people that we had before. I think the people we had before would have been just as bad if they could have been. Uh, and I don't think that it's like they're smarter. I, I think that it's that we have different material circumstances and policy environments that allow the same mediocre people to be much worse. And so that's how we ended up in this platform universe where, as Tom Eastman says, we have five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four and where the decay comes about uh, kind of very reliably among these bloated, bad platforms. So th let's go through the, the decay steps. In step one, a platform is given some kind of surplus, usually from its investors. So it's usually like just money that it can spend without having to make money back. And it gives that surplus to its end users. So a good example here would be what we saw from Facebook. Facebook started off uh, when they went uh, available to the general public and not just American college kids. They said, hey, we know you love MySpace, but did you know it's owned by a crapulent, evil Australian billionaire and he is spying on you with every hour that God sends? Come use Facebook. We are the alternative to MySpace that will never spy on you. And what's more, if all you do is come here and follow the people who matter to you, that is, tell us who matters to you, we will use that information to generate a custom feed for you. And anytime you check in, we will just show you the latest things that the people who you asked to see stuff from have published for their followers to see. And the step ends once the users become locked in. And every platform has a different way of locking in its users. You know, with Uber, it's like uh, getting rid of all the public transit and the taxis. So you're kind of stuck taking Uber. With Amazon, it's, it's driving all the small businesses out of business so that you have to shop at Amazon. Um, but with social media, it's actually much simpler. All you need to do to lock people into social media is get them to use it. Because once we're all on social media, we can't agree on, on where to go to next or whether it's time to leave. This is something economists call the collective action problem. We just hold each other hostage. And so once those users were locked in, it went to stage two, which is withdrawing surpluses from users and allocating them to business customers, uh, publishers and advertisers. Every platform is a different kind of business customer. Uber, it's drivers and riders. Amazon, it's merchants and buyers. Google, it's searchers and publishers. And with Facebook, it was publishers and advertisers on one side and users on the other. So it went to those publishers, uh, or went to the advertisers, rather, and it said, hey, do you remember when we told these rubes that uh, we weren't going to spy on them? We were totally lying to them, and we are spying on them in every conceivable way. And if you pay us, we will let you target them with ads. And we're going to charge like pennies for those ads. And we're going to spend huge amounts of money policing the ad marketplaces to make sure that they are fraud free. So when you pay for an ad, a person sees the ad. And then they went to the publishers and they said, hey, do you remember when we told these suckers we were only going to show them the things they asked to see? That was a lie, too. If you just post like little snippets of what's on your website here, along with a link back to your website, we'll non-consensually cram it into the eyeballs of people who never asked to see it and turn that into a traffic funnel for you. And you can monetize them however you monetize people on your own website. 
And so then it locked in those business customers, the publishers and the advertisers. And once it had them locked in, it turned the screws on them too. So for advertisers, the price went up, ad fraud policing went down. It, it's Unless you're like in the weeds on this stuff, it's hard to know exactly how fraudulent the ad market is. But here's a sense of it. Procter & Gamble used to spend $100 million a year on what, what are called programmatic ads. Those are the surveillance ads based on your behavior. And it dropped that ad spend to zero and it experienced a $0 drop in its sales. So basically none of those ads were being shown to anyone. They were just paying $100 million a year for fraud. And so Facebook draws down the anti-fraud and for the publishers, they start to um, twiddle the knobs. Now, digital has got all of this great flexibility on the back end that normal businesses don't have. If, if you wanna screw over a certain kind of customer as soon as they walk in the store by like changing the prices, say, that's pretty hard. You know, you, you can't just like identify the person who walks into your store and then pay an army of teenagers on roller skates to go around and reprice everything based on what you think they'll pay. But with digital, you can just turn the knobs on the back end and change the deal. I call this the Darth Vader MBA. You know, I've altered the deal, pray I don't alter it further. And um, the Darth Vader MBA in this case was that the publishers suddenly had to um, start putting more and more of their content on Facebook. Otherwise, their stuff wouldn't be recommended to people. And then it was if you had any content at all that wasn't on Facebook, it wouldn't be recommended to people. So you had to just become like a commodity Facebook supplier. And then the final phase, it was like, also, if you put a link back to your own website, we're not going to show it to anyone because uh, maybe it's a malicious link. Oh, and by the way, we no longer even show your content to the people who subscribe to it. If you want to reach those people, you're going to need to pay to boost your own content. So this is like the people who explicitly asked to see what you post are no longer going to see it. And so then we get to like end stage in shitification where all the surplus is withdrawn and you're trying to leave just enough behind that everyone stays locked to the platform. But any surplus penny is allocated to its deserving owner, which is the shareholders. And you've got something that is like hovering on the bubble between so bad that no one will use it and nearly so bad that no one will use it. And that's such a, a brittle equilibrium. Like all it takes is one live stream mass shooting or one uh, whistleblower or one giant Cambridge Analytica style scandal. And the next thing you know, people are running for the exits. And so when that happens, when the when that equilibrium tips over, then the platforms start to do something that tech bros call pivoting, which is like a euphemism for panicking. And so in Facebook's case, the pivot looks like this. Once we decided that we were going to make everybody in the world talk to each other on our platform and commodify their relationships, that's not what we do anymore. The company is now called Meta. And our mission now is to turn you into a legless, sexless, low polygon, heavily surveilled cartoon character <laughs> in a virtual world we ripped off from a 25-year-old cyberpunk novel, right? And so that's like the, the enshittening, right? That's when the whole thing turns into a pile of shit. And for a, a bunch of reasons, one is that like there are no more competitors because we don't enforce uh, competition law anymore. Another is that they've dropped the zero interest rate policy, so there isn't free money to run these services on. But all the platforms are in shittening at once, uh, whether that's like Unity or Reddit or Twitch, Google Search, uh, they're all turning into a pile of shit all at once. And and the enshittification analysis is a way to understand just how it's going and why. Yeah, no, I find this lens so clarifying. There's so many experiences I've had over the internet over the last couple of years where you have like all the ads that you're being served are now like 
weird scam ads where they're selling you something that's not actually in the ad or it's someone hired on Upwork who's like doing a TikTok style video talking to themselves, advertising some product that may or may not exist. And yeah, and the platforms are just like clearly decaying. You can't link to your own website on Twitter anymore without getting throttled. Um, and reading through some of this stuff and watching some of the talks you did, it really sticks out to me how this experience on social media is kind of a microcosm of what's happening in this big tech era of capitalism with, you know, Amazon and Uber you talk about and choke point capitalism as well. Could you help um, maybe draw out some of those connections of like, this is this is a, a larger thing than just something that's happening on Facebook. This is something that's happening in capitalism. Yeah, so it is happening in capitalism. And, and I agree that you can see examples of this all over the place. You know, think about grocery store shrinkflation or in Canada, you know, Galen Weston doing the most Les Mis ass thing imaginable and fixing the price of bread, you know, uh, but there's a difference with digital. So let's talk about what's common to all these different forms of capitalism, what's different, and then what it says about what we can do next, because that's a really important element here not just like what's gone wrong, but how do we fix it? So what's in common among all these industries is that they've become super concentrated. You name the industry, it's dwindled to like four or five companies. You know, eyeglasses are run by one company. There's a French-Italian consortium called Luxottica Essilor that owns every eyewear brand you've ever heard of from like Bausch & Lohm to uh, Dolce & Gabbana to Coach to Oakley. They also own Sunglass Hut and Lens Crafters and Sears Optical and Target Optical. Their Essilor division makes more than 50% of the corrective lenses in the world. And IMED, their insurance branch, writes more prescriptions or underwrites more prescriptions and pairs than anyone else in the world. So like it doesn't matter where you get your glasses from, even if you're like buying a glass from some like internet dude with a wax mustache and a leather apron who's like gnawing them out of a whole log with his own teeth like the insurer that's paying for them is still looks out of castle or you can't escape them and they've raised the prices of glasses a thousand percent in the last decade they've stolen our eyes and that's what every industry looks like there's two companies that make all the beer there's two companies that make all the spirits there's two companies that make all the running shoes you know there's three companies that run the uh, world's uh, global shipping cartel one company that does all the world's professional wrestling so you know when i was a kid there were like 30 wrestling leagues and now there's one and the rapey trumpy billionaire who runs it has reclassified all of his employees as uh, contractors took away all their medical insurance and now they're all begging for pennies to die with dignity of their work-related injuries on GoFundMe in their 50s. This is true of like cheerleading. It's true of bottle caps. It's true of vitamin C. You name the sector, it looks like this. So it's not surprising the tech looks like this. You know, in, in Choke Point Capitalism, that book you mentioned, we talk about how the entertainment sector is five giant publishers, four giant studios, three giant record labels, two giant companies that do all the ad tech, two other giant companies that do all the e uh, all the um, apps, and then one company that controls all the ebooks and audiobooks. And so the, every sector looks like this. And when the sectors get this concentrated, it becomes really easy for them to agree on a set of lobbying priorities, right? The, the term regulatory capture actually has its origins in far-right economics uh, with the public choice theory group out of the University of Chicago. And, and their idea of, of regulatory capture is pretty nihilistic. It's just like, if there's a government, it'll be captured, therefore we shouldn't have a government. But I think it's fairer to say that regulatory capture happens when the affected industry is concentrated enough that they don't stab each other in the back when they go to lobby, 
right? Like if, if you remember the Napster Wars, when tech was getting its ass kicked by uh, entertainment companies left, right, and center, it wasn't because tech was smaller than the record labels. It was much bigger than the record labels. It was just composed of like hundreds of companies that all hated each other's guts and were selling each other out in lobbying, whereas there was like class solidarity among the seven giant record labels which are now three giant record labels and so they were able to they were able to just outmaneuver tech and so as these sectors get more concentrated they're able to seize control of their regulatory environment and in the case of tech that takes two forms one is that they are able to relieve themselves of any regulation so they're not really bound by privacy nor by labor nor by consumer protection law and because they have all that digital flexibility, they can violate those laws in really exciting ways, right? Um, you know, you look at Uber, Uber practices something called algorithmic wage discrimination. And that's where two workers who do the same job will be paid a different rate for it based on some behavioral data about that worker. And the way that Uber does that is it has an algorithm that prices its workers' labor and makes offers to them. And if it thinks that you're an ant, which is what the workers who take every ride call themselves, it's going to give you a very lowball offer for your labor. But if it thinks that you're a picker, which is what the workers call choosy workers, it's going to pay you more. But as you become less choosy, it drops the wage that you're being offered, right? So that's the kind of thing you can do when you have digital flexibility and you have the regulatory capture that lets you avoid enforcement of labor law, which bans wage discrimination, right? If you said, oh, I'm going to pay you more for doing this job because you're a woman or because you're a man or because you're white or whatever, that would be illegal. But if you do it with an algorithm, it's fine. And so that's one kind of regulatory capture. The other kind of regulatory capture isn't the relief from tech laws. It's the imposition of tech laws on us. So tech has this incredible flexibility. All computers are... Turing complete universal von Neumann machines, which is a lot of computer science jargon to mean that the only computer we know how to make is the computer that can run every program we know how to write, which means that you can always write a program that lets you get free of all of this bad conduct from the tech companies, right? You could do a thing that comparison shops or that only accepts jobs in a way that keeps your wage from dropping. Or hell, you can just have an ad blocker, right? On the open web, Everyone's got an ad blockers. One in four internet users has installed them. Doc Searles calls it the largest consumer boycott in history. But if you try to do that with an app, they're able to mobilize IP law to stop you from doing it. An app is really just a web page that's been wrapped in enough IP law that it's illegal to do things that the shareholders of the company that made the app don't like. And so you combine these three factors, market concentration, so there's few places you can go, and then the regulatory capture that it begets, which is total flexibility to use digital to harm us and total restriction on us using that digital flexibility to help ourselves. And you get the specific pathology of the tech companies, which is different from the pathology of the eyeglass companies or the beer companies, right? And, and it also holds out the possibility of different remedies because we could, on the one hand, apply labor consumer protection and privacy law to the tech companies and force them to stand up gateways that allow locked in users to leave. So you could say, leave Twitter or Facebook, go to a service like Diaspora or Mastodon, but continue to send messages to the people that you left behind. So you're not locked in anymore. You're not holding other people hostage because you can leave without leaving them behind. And on the other hand, we can bring back the defense of reverse engineering, scraping bots, all that guerrilla warfare stuff that we used to do to give us more control over the technology that we use to, to seize the means of computation. 
and we can stop people from abusing that facility to invade our privacy, to abuse our labor rights, or to abuse our consumer rights by applying those same consumer privacy and labor laws to people who do that reverse engineering work as we do to the big companies that they're doing it against. Didn't it used to be the case that you could do things like have that sort of interoperability in an earlier phase of the internet? I, I remember being able to like log in back and forth, switch websites a little bit easier. Is this something that's been lost in the last decade or two decades? Yeah, it's kind of a complicated story. And I go into some detail in the internet con about how this works. But basically, the, the IP law hasn't changed, right? The law that prohibits reverse engineering, uh, if there's an effective means of access control, has not changed. What's changed is how cheap it is to have these effective means of access control. So, um, you know, for background here, there's an American law from 1998 called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And clause 1201 of it says that if you bypass an effective means of access control for a copyrighted work, you commit a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. And that goes even if you're just providing the tool to do it, or even if you're just providing information that would help someone make that tool, including information about defects in a product that might be exploited to make that tool. So this is like a very far-reaching law. And when it was first passed, it mostly applied to things like DVD players, where they were doing this like penny ante shit like um, locking a DVD player to a certain region. So if they wanted to release a movie in India later than they released it in Canada, you couldn't bring a DVD from Canada to India and watch it. Or if they wanted to release a movie for a higher price in Europe than they did in the United States, you couldn't bring an American disc to Europe and play it on a European DVD player. So this is pretty, pretty small potatoes. But as it got cheaper and cheaper to add computers to components and subcomponents of our devices, and as the devices we had grew more powerful and flexible, we started to see these digital locks everywhere. So now it's in things like coffee makers where, you know, bypassing the lock that checks your coffee pod machine to make sure you bought an official pod can be a, a DMCA 1201 violation. And laws that are parallel to DMCA 1201 spread around the world. Canada got it with Bill C-11 in 2012. And then, you know, Australia got it in uh, with the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement. And Europe got it in 2001 with the Copyright Directive. So now those laws are also more broadly applicable. And really, it was the advent of the walled garden of the curated computer. So this is things like a phone where you can only install apps through a certain store or an Internet of Things gadget like a thermostat, where it was now practical to insert a digital lock in the device so that reconfiguring it to do anything you liked and the manufacturer didn't required bypassing that lock that created the conditions under which we got what, what Jay Freeman calls felony contempt of business model, where anything a manufacturer didn't want you to do, whether that's getting an independent mechanic to fix your car or putting third-party ink in your printer or installing software of your choosing on your phone, was transformed into a felony by adding one of these increasingly cheap digital locks to it. In other news, a gang of roving interoperability pirates have illegally cracked Gmail to allow it to communicate with Outlook addresses for the first time in 20 years. They have been arrested for felony contempt of business model and executed in the town square in front of all the little children. In other news, the metaverse has made its $12 today from Dan, their one user. Dan told reporters, it's like an NFT you can live in. Other people will be arriving any minute. 
When reporters asked Dan if the headset was making his face sweaty and was uncomfortable, Dan replied, quote, yes. In other news, there is no one left to work for Amazon, as all of them have been burned through by exploitative work conditions. Customers are requested to not visit their family at the Amazon Worker Memorial Graveyard because it is too busy and the lineups are too long. Amazon suggests buying home electronics in lieu of flowers. In other news, Schmoople has successfully merged with Who? After a $39.7 billion deal has passed regulators in the United States and the European Union. The new company, which is now being called Sliz, after their shared parent company, has said the merger will not prevent their signature project Sminks from going to market by quarter three. CEO Geet Finkus said today, after the Buha debacle, our Sliz wizards are going to be bouncing back in a big way with Sminks. I'm looking forward to Flupal Snakes. What about you? Sorry, Flupal Sminks. I always get that wrong. I'm excited for what these tech wizards are going to dream up next. In other news, tech wizards have now invented an enormous headset that you can wear at all times, while driving in traffic, walking down the street, or just going about your day. It will filter the world in an augmented reality that will cover everybody else's headsets with a real-time digital projection of their actual facial expressions. So it's just like actually being able to see their face. This augmented reality will have exclusive advertisements and digital products. You can decorate your house your way in this digital hyper-reality. The scans taken from everyone's headsets will help us to create a real-time 3D map of all of human society so we can fight terrorism better. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I, I do hope we catch those terrorists and pirates and string them up. You said it. My grandfather was killed by a terrorist when you went overseas for the military, so... That's it's personal for me. I'm just if I can say on behalf of both of us, I think I'm just so grateful for the technologist military protectorate mm, for bringing yeah. stability to Earth after the helium wars and uh, giving us access to all this technology. They could take it away at any moment, but they don't. They're benevolent leaders. Absolutely. And may every brave soldier like your grandfather rest in peace. Oh, and thank you. hopefully our boys in the Alpha Centauri system successfully win the mind war. I know we've lost a lot of boys out, out there. It'll be a happy day when I get to deliver that in other news. In other news, we've won the mind war. Whew, that'll be a highlight of my career. Oh, in other news, all the veterans have come home and they're healed and we're rebuilding again. I look forward to delivering that news someday soon. As long as we all keep on buying war NFTs. I know my stockpile grows every day. You can actually own a part of the war digitally forever. Yeah, nobody can take that away from you. It's non-fungible. I digitally own 20 of the massacred technologist protectorate soldiers uh, on the... Uh, blockchain? Yeah, I own it on the blockchain, but uh, sorry, the, 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 the war they died on was, was on uh, one of the moons of Jupiter. I can't remember which one right now. But I own it forever on the blockchain, digitally. And I can visit it in, inside augmented reality as well. On the subject of the, the metaverse, there's only one person I know who uh, is a metaverse user. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How do we even intro this person? That's... 
It's interesting. He he he. It's a guy we used to argue with online a lot. Yeah, who created his own podcast, which was kind of like a response to our podcast, but from a far right perspective. Yeah, it was basically like sexism and UFOs or something. What was the second episode about? The first one was about being a rape apologist. Yeah, the, the first episode was basically like Evo Psych dating advice that was yeah. like, and the second episode, I don't... I, I think it was like religion or something, but he like he had like his, like a, I don't know how to describe, like sort of new agey, I think he would reject that title though, psychedelic influence, anyway, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and he, he's anyway. a guy who, over the years, he's had various YouTube channels and twitch streams and stuff yeah he made this podcast named after our podcast like a different name but similar yeah i don't know it was weird but he anyway sometimes you have these people you meet online but then there's like you stop talking to them but you have like a lingering connection as in like i'm still facebook friends on one of my facebook accounts with one of his facebook accounts so you see these like metaverse posts popping up and he's just like standing there like his his avatar became a metaverse avatar yeah it's it's like profile pictures like a selfie taken in the metaverse in like an empty room by himself as a floating torso (laughs) with his little his little username but yeah he's the only person i know who's in the metaverse someone who's like a major trump supporter Mm. but yeah he's kind of like an ayahuasca conservative yeah exact right (laughs) explanation of who he is actually i think that's i think that's a great title for that type of person ayahuasca conservative yeah, I don't know if he's ever actually done ayahuasca specifically, yeah, but, it's, but it's a yeah. vibe more yeah. than like so people talk about it as like woo woo or like conspiracy or uh, there's like lots of terms people use for like this conspiracy granola conservative or like the Trump supporters who are Buddhists. Like there's recent polling showing that B- Buddhists have gotten more homophobic since 2014. Oh, yeah, like right wing hippies is the other box i'd put him in but yeah but ayahuasca conservative is actually that's just that's really it so yeah the only metaverse user i know is an ayahuasca conservative yeah so i don't know what that says about the metaverse it's just an interesting yeah it's just a little factoid i don't know (laughs) it's just seriously wrong lore (laughs) just we just found it funny when we were discussing the metaverse that for both of us this was the only one I want to ask about the antitrust law situation and this quote was it Peter Thiel said competition is for losers. You mentioned a little bit about this before, but how do we get to the situation today where we have this growing sort of monopoly situation? Didn't, isn't this something that used to be cracked down on? Yeah. So the short answer is we stopped cracking down on it. The long answer is like, why did we stop cracking down on it? And that's that's a long story. And there's, you know, there's no one answer. I would say the most important thing to understand is is what we learn in uh, Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty, where he points out that like once the richest people, sort of say the richest 10% control a certain percentage of the total value in the economy, then um, they're able to control the shots, right? They're able to capture their regulators and get policy that benefits them. And And if you look at the share of wealth owned by the top decile in the post-war years. Because like, remember, the war destroyed so much wealth that we had this period where the rich people were comparatively much poorer. Like, We got made a lot more equal by the two wars in the interwar years by um, making rich people much poorer by destroying everything. That's like not a good way to get equality, but that's how it happened, right? And um, 
by the mid 1970s, like the rich people are just richer, right? They're rich enough that they can start calling the shots and then they do start calling the shots. And so for Piketty, that's, that's how we got to this point where we got a lot of changes, right? Changes to labor law, changes to antitrust law, changes to like all the laws that reign in corporate power. They all, they all occur around that time. And in the case of antitrust law, the kind of uh, rationale for dialing back antitrust law was, uh, weirdly enough, a conspiracy theory. So there is this guy called uh, Robert Bork, who was a, a jurist, a judge. And his most important legacy here is that the term Borked uh, was coined to describe just how badly he handled his confirmation hearing when Ronald Reagan <laughs> tried to put him on the uh, tried to put him on the Supreme Court. And uh, Robert Bork had this theory that although antitrust law was like very explicitly created to stop corporations from getting so big that, you know, governments can no longer rein them in, that that was actually not what they wanted. What they actually wanted was to stop the rare monopolist whose idea of like what they should do with their market power wasn't to like make life better for consumers, but rather to rip us off. And, and if you ever were to encounter one of these potentially mythical monopolists, well, that's when the government should step in. And the rest of the time, they should just be like super tolerant of these guys who like, you know, if they have a monopoly, it's probably because they're just so good at their job that we all prefer buying the stuff they sell rather than everyone else's. And it would suck to just like punish them for being awesome. And so that's the foundational change. It's called the consumer welfare theory. It comes up in the, uh, a little bit under Carter, but mostly under Reagan and then in, in Canada under Mulroney and in the UK under Thatcher. Although it should be said that in Canada, uh, like we never had a good uh, antitrust law. <laughs> we mostly like what Canada got was the benefits of the fact that the Americans had a good antitrust law because like the companies that abuse Canadians are usually American. And so, you know, it, it, by keeping American companies small, the American government limited how much harm they could do to Canadians too. That was just like kind of a, a side benefit of, of how this all worked. So, you know, fast forward uh, 40 years and every U.S. president, as well as European commissioners, as well as U.K. prime ministers, and also gov uh, governments all around the world, they've all grown more tolerant of and even celebratory of monopolies as being super efficient and like of monopoly power as being evidence of being good. And you have among capitalists an increased interest in being monopolist and in, in being a rentier and not a uh, and not a, a capitalist and and I know that leftists like sneer at this distinction. It's actually a really important one. It goes back to the earliest days of capitalism, the Industrial Revolution, where you had rich people who weren't capitalists, who were rentiers, right? They're the the feudalists who owned land, and capitalists hated them, right? Uh, when you hear um, Adam Smith talk about free markets. The free market that he wants isn't a market that's free from regulation. It's a market that's free from what economists call rents, which is money that you get for owning something instead of doing something. Because as far as the capitalists were concerned, they like figured out an amazing way to make a ton of money. And that was by taking the land that hereditary peasants worked on and turning those hereditary peasants into a proletariat and getting them to come work in factories that they would build on the land. And the landowners who just wanted to like have peasants show up and do work on their land and pay them rent every year and didn't want capitalism to spring up in its in, in their place, they were opposed to capitalism, right? Feudalists were anti-capitalist. Capitalists all secretly want to be feudalists, right? They secretly want to 
um, rent out the means of production to someone who does the work, but they don't want to actually do the production. They, they want passive income. And so that's Peter Thiel, right? Competition is for losers. Peter Thiel is basically saying capitalism sucks. The way to be a successful business person is to own something that someone else needs to produce, right? We, like capitalists and feudalists, they all agree that the working class should be immiserated as much as possible. But capitalists want them immiserated in their own factories, whereas feudalists want them immiserated in fields where they are their own bosses but still owe them rent. Like Uber is a feudal business. It's not a capitalist business, right? The worker owns the means of production under Uber, right? They, they buy the car <laughs> and then they have to rent the right to use the car from Uber through the app. And they have to pay the lion's share of their income to Uber for the privilege of using their own car to, to go around and, and make money for Uber, just like a feudal peasant had to own the threshing tools and the, the, the frames and all the other things they used to do agricultural production, but they had to pay to use the land that they used them on. And all the production was owned by the workers. All the means of production was owned by the workers. In, in, this, in this kind of theory of uh, monopolization as a neutral to good thing, part of their argument, if I remember right, is that this is something that can help lower prices or at the very least won't raise prices. I think when people talk about Amazon, like there's a general understanding Amazon is like this, you know, creepy, evil, growing corporation with horrible labor practices. But they're like, oh, but it's pretty cheap and convenient. Mm -hmm. Is it actually cheap and convenient? So it gets less cheap and less convenient by the day, right? So, and, and Amazon's a really good example of a rentier. Like we, we tend to concentrate on the harms of Amazon to workers, which are very real, or to our streets, which are very real with all the Amazon delivery vans, or maybe to the environment, or maybe sometimes to small businesses. But what we don't understand about Amazon for the most part is just how much money Amazon takes out of the merchants who have to sell on Amazon. So when you buy Prime, you are pre-committing to a year's worth of Amazon shipping. If you get something shipped by anyone other than Amazon, you're throwing away money that you've already given to Amazon. And so the majority of U.S. households have Prime, and the majority of Prime customers, when they uh, need something, they start by searching on Amazon, and if they find it, they don't shop anywhere else. And that means that Amazon really has the merchants where it hurts. And so merchants who sell on Amazon's platforms are now spending between 45 and 51% of every dollar they bring in on fees that Amazon charges them for fulfillment, for what Amazon calls advertising. It's not really advertising, it's, um, it's payola. So like if you have a product that doesn't match someone's search, but you want it to be at the top of the search, you can pay for search placement. And that means that the people who do have the product that meets that matches your search have to pay even more for search placement. It adds up to about $31 billion a year just in junk fees to control search placement on Amazon. And Amazon, because it has such a powerful grip on those sellers, it also has this thing called the most favored nation deal. And under a most favored nation deal, the lowest price that a uh, merchant charges anywhere has to be matched by the price that it charges on Amazon. And that means that if it raises the price on Amazon to cover that 45 to 51% that it's, that it's paying Amazon in junk fees, it has to raise its prices everywhere else. So whether you're shopping at a corner store or you know at a convenience store or at a Target or at a uh, Walmart, you are paying more so that Amazon can get the extra money that it gets from ripping off merchants, right? When they raise their prices on Amazon, they have to raise their prices everywhere else. 
Yeah, and that's it's kind of like one of the commonalities that I notice across these different things is there's a sort of platform pinch where there's, you know, people on both sides of the platform get ripped off in ways that are complementary to the the goals of the platform, but harmful to everyone else. Well, you might even call that a choke point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hence, hence the title of our book, Choke Point Capitalism, right? That these platforms, these intermediaries, remember the intermediary is the indigenous form of the internet. These platforms, what they want to do is, is lock up a bunch of end users, which then allows them to lock up a bunch of business customers. And so in the case of entertainers or creative workers, that would be audiences and, and then the creative workers get trapped. And those pinch points are, are a very powerful way to extract rent. And in fact, a lot of our historic battles over corporate power or over market power have to do with literal pinch points, right? Like owning a railroad that is the only way people can get their goods to market or owning the ferry that is literally the only way to get across the river to reach the market, the literal marketplace, the place where people need to buy things. And that ferryman, you know, if he's being what, what psychos from uh, the Chicago school call economically rational, that ferryman will charge the entire amount that you would expect to get from your day selling your goods at the market less one penny, because that's the price that you are willing to pay in order to get across the river and get to market. And so, yeah, for you know generations, we have known that these choke points are what, um, again, what economists call a moral hazard, right? Uh, an invitation to do something immoral. And what does it look like to fix all of this? Like, what is the what is the pathway to outside of this system? And what is the kind of, you know, idealist or positive, if not perfect outcome that we could even hope for in, in undoing this stuff? Well, let's start by saying that, like, it, it's not intrinsically bad to have intermediaries. I don't know if you guys ever spent any time in Toronto. I, I know you're on the West Coast. Do, do you, are you Toronto people at all? I've visited, but, but only yeah, once okay. or twice. I saw a Jordan Peterson debate Zizek there. Oh, very nice. Did, did Zizek say anything embarrassing and transphobic, or did he manage to get through a whole hour without doing he that? He did a whole hour without... Without doing boomer grandpa it a, shit. It was a fascinating... Yeah, yeah. An interesting part was when um, Jordan Peterson said something about, like, these communists are bloodthirsty, and then someone in the audience cheered, and he looked totally <laughs> disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's such a such a, a candy ass. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, uh, sorry, Toronto. Yes, Toronto. <laughs> so in Toronto, there was this infamous guy. He was quite wonderful named Crad Kalodny. He was a writer and he used to stand on a street corner in Toronto with a sign around his neck that said, very famous Canadian author, buy my books. He would sometimes just wear a sign that said Margaret Atwood. He was, he was great. He was completely nuts, but he was great. And his books were amazing. And he used to also make secret tape recordings of drunks who came up and harassed him and then sell the tapes as well. <laughs> he was like a pioneer of weird art. And, and as much as I love Crad's work, uh, and he's dead now, but as much as I love Crad's work, I don't think that every writer who has something to say is also capable of selling the way that he sold, right? It's okay that we have booksellers and publishers and uh, printers and like all those other things. The problem isn't that these things exist. The problem is the power relationship between them in the same way that the difference between a uh, capitalist and a feudal society isn't whether people are making money from capital or, or making money from uh, rents. It's to, it's in what mix. It's who's, who's on top, right? If when there's a conflict between capital and uh, rents, capital wins, 
then you're in a capitalist society. If rents win, then you're in a feudal society. It's not that you have to have exclusively one or the other. And, um, and you know, there are versions of societies with middlemen, with intermediaries that are just fine and, in fact, totally great. And the thing that determines whether they're not great is whether they can wield power over the people who they intermediate between. And one source of that power is a lack of competition, right? When you're the only game in town, you can treat your customers worse and they can't leave. You know, there's an old Lily Tomlin sketch from Saturday Night Live where she plays a phone operator and it ends with, we don't have to care, we're the phone company, right? And that's a common refrain. We all know what that looks like. The other thing that helps you control your market and extract harms from the people who, who you intermediate for is if they can't leave. So maybe there are competitors, but you can't reach them. So that would be things like digital rights management doing lock-in. But, you know, we've all seen this too. Like if you go to the airport, once you're on the far side of the checkpoint, then, you know, all of a sudden a bottle of water costs $17. And that's because going back through the checkpoint takes 45 minutes. And so they don't have to care. They're the phone company, right? That's when they get to abuse you again. And so if we want to make things better, on the one hand, we can encourage competition. And on the other hand, we can lower the cost of leaving. And so one way to encourage competition is to do the historic work of antitrust authorities, which would be scrutinizing mergers, breaking up companies that have uh, merged to dominance. That's something that takes a long time. It took 69 years to break up AT&T. So it would be nice if we can do some stuff while we're waiting. And one of the things that we can do while we're waiting is um, start to impose these interoperability mandates on these companies so that they have to open up these gateways so that it's easy to leave so that you don't ha- you don't get to charge $16 for a bottle of water because it's really easy to get through the checkpoint. You, you get rid of these choke points with interoperability. And the second half of the book is really about, as a technical matter, how you construct these interoperability remedies. Like, what, what do you do to make interoperability happen? Because it's one thing, it's nice to say, oh, we should have interoperability, but interoperability is easier said than done. And so the second half of the book is like, what should that regulation look like? How do we, how do we write it? How do we enforce it? How do we make sure that it's not turning into a burden that stops like cooperatives or, or small groups of friends or nonprofits or community groups from standing up their own rival online services that can give you a better deal where we can have services that are operated by and for the people who use them, which is something that's always a risk, right? When you start to pass rules for the big guys, you can make it impossible to be a little guy. And so, you know, I I put a lot of energy into thinking through what a a shovel-ready plan for a better internet would look like. And that's grounded in the theory of change that comes from my arch enemy, Milton Friedman, the architect of the neoliberal revolution and the kind of duke of the um, Chicago school. And Friedman was an absolute unit, right? Like he, he had this idea that we would somehow get people to voluntarily give up on all the post-war advances that we'd made and shared prosperity. You know, those those weren't perfect, right? Obviously the New Deal and the post-war social consensus had great racial inequity and social inequity. It wasn't as good for women as it was for men. It wasn't as good for indigenous people. It wasn't, it didn't encompass a gender critique or a gender identity critique and, and, and so on, but it was getting there, right? Like all of those radical movements, they piggybacked on the labor movement as their kind of infrastructure for building it. And so people said to Friedman, like, how are you going to get people to go back to being forelock-tugging peasants 
instead of people who's like get to hope that hey someday my kid might go to university and like not be you know live live in a better life than i do and i might get weekends and retirement and all that other stuff that's that's quite nice to imagine and friedman would say when a crisis comes ideas lying around can move from the periphery to the center very quickly and so our job is to promote these ideas lying around until the impossible becomes the inevitable right and i think that that's true for us too that big tech is always on fire it is in an unstable configuration there is no version of big tech that is good right there's no it's not just that like facebook has the wrong billionaire who's appointed himself social media czar for life for you know three billion people the problem is that that job exists at all uh, we need to abolish that job. And so Facebook is going to be creating crisis after crisis after crisis because it it can't help but create those crises because it is bad. It is bad per se, not just badly run, but a bad thing in the world. And so we need to have good ideas lying around. We keep seeing these crises erupt in big tech. And what we do at each juncture is the same thing we did last time, only harder, and hope for a better outcome. And that has been an absolute failure. And so what we need to do is try and build solutions that will actually make a difference. Yeah, no, that's it's brilliant. And I got to say, as I was reading the Internet Con, I was totally convinced by your argument. And I really appreciate because it was almost counterintuitive at first. It felt like when thinking about interoperability, it felt like a small thing. And as I'm reading the book and thinking about how this all fits together, I think it's absolutely on point and brilliant stuff. Like, it's actually like, I can't think of a time I've recently read a sort of contemporary analysis of some of these trends within the tech industry in particular that has been so resonant. So I really, really appreciate the book. Oh, gosh, that's so nice of you. And I would say, you know, that the fact that it's small is a feature and not a bug, right? It is a highly leveraged intervention that if we can make it, makes a huge difference. Like in the same way that of all the things that the Chicago School did, it can seem like uh, neutering antitrust was was pretty small potatoes compared to, say, breaking unions or whatever, right? But when you actually look at, at what made the biggest difference over the long terms, it wasn't um, breaking unions, right? Because breaking the unions was a thing that they had to do in increments. It was building up more corporate power because more corporate power let them accelerate the rate at which they broke unions, at which they neutered environmental regulation, at which they you know, were able to capture politicians with unlimited campaign donations and so on. All of that stems from the tolerance for and the encouragement of monopoly. And interoperability is kind of like the opposite. It's distributing power to the bottom up that's uh, right. Giving power to challenge them actively on an ongoing basis in creative new ways and having basically everyone who develops tech be able to orient their tech development to undermining when Facebook does something fucked up, screws with the users. You can create your own Facebook app that's going to remove the bullshit from the timeline people don't want. You know, the same way that all email providers can email each other. Uh, you can get an app on your phone that's going to have Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, and Signal all together in one place, pulling out all the inshittification and just leaving the actual good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I said before that these companies aren't run by worse people. Uh, and that's not just about the leadership. That's all the way down. I, I have known people in the tech sector all my life because I got my start in the tech sector. And there are plenty of honorable people who don't relish the idea that the work that they do is going to harm end users. And they often would stand up for us 
you know, you can imagine like a product design meeting in which someone wants to do something that's really bad for the users. And then you have people who advocate for the users in that product design meeting. And the thing that makes it possible for those people to win, right? The reason that we had a good Google for so many years before we got the bad Google that we have now is that they won the argument and they won the argument, not just by saying it would be better for our users, but also if we do something that makes our service worse, we create a reason for users to look around at something else. And we create a reason for our competitors to try and create something that corrects the thing that we made that was terrible, right? Like every crappy ad creates a market for an ad blocker. And um, it's only when it becomes illegal to make that ad blocker because the ads disappear into apps, which have digital rights management around them, these digital locks, that um, those people start to lose the argument because all they can say is, I would feel dirty about doing this, but not you will be poorer if you do this. And that was that that was the winning argument. You know, money talks and bullshit walks. We now go to two adult sons in a garage doing a presentation for their mothers about the true nature of extraterrestrial visitation. Hey everyone, mom, Sean's mom. Uh, this is Sean and Aaron. We're here. At hey, Mrs. Moritz. Hey, mom. Giving you a presentation. Moms. We could moms, say hi, moms. moms. His mom, my mom, the moms. I think moms is best. You know Not to I mean. imply that you're my mom, of course. I'm just talking to my own mother when I say that. But if you say moms, it almost sounds like you have two moms. Right. But it yeah. is. But yeah, it's definitely elegant when compared to something like hi, mom, and his mom, or hi, two, two moms, moms, one of which is mine. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, we just call you the moms, and I think we all understand that uh, we have two separate moms who separate aren't fathers, married separate to each mothers, other. Yeah, fathers who are not present here for this presentation. But although if you two fell in love and did get married, we would be okay with and that, and we would become brothers. Yeah, so it's worth considering. It'd be good for the show potentially. Anyway, so we've invited um, all of our family basically to come listen to this presentation, but you two are the only ones to show up. So we just wanted to give you a big thank you for that. Thank you for your support and in our investigations on this. This is important stuff. As you can see, we've used a lot of yarn to connect a lot of pictures on a big board. Yeah. We've looked into this stuff and we've been thinking about it really hard for a very, very long time. Years. Yeah, we've been thinking about this for years. So basically, moms, what's happening with the aliens is that there's some sort of intergalactic political order and there's something like a prime directive like from Star Trek that you don't interfere with planets. You let them have their own developmental trajectory. But there is sort of one faction that is violating that on our planet. So we, planet Earth is being infiltrated by members of a political faction that are space feudalists, space feudal capitalists, space... They, they, they want to economically exploit our planet, uh, and they also want us to join their political faction in space parliament to advance their politics further. Yeah, essentially the way I see their society as being set up is that there's a capitalist core, uh, but then they're trying to find smaller, weaker, but resource-dense planets like ours to turn into sort of feudal outposts of their society. So the way they've been doing that is by 
coming into our society and creating these sort of feudal-esque companies like Amazon and Uber, charging rents, trying to gobble up the economy as a whole to gain control of everything so that when we become aware of extraterrestrials as a society, uh, they'll be able to just sort of legally purchase Amazon and Uber and own the entire planet as a feudal outpost of their broader capitalist society. And uh, we've got reason to think that they're already strip mining our planet right now, that they're shipping off our valuable resources, you know, our helium, our aluminum, you know, our, our copper, you know, just raw stuff, clean water. Uh, they're just shipping it off in spaceships all the time, stealing from us, using economic instruments to put themselves as middlemen and in international corporations, shipping to companies that don't exist by paying with money that's hacked into the system and never existed in the first place. You know, these are advanced creatures, and they can do things like shapeshift, probably. I mean, who knows? But probably. Yeah, I uh, assume. So they might even be in government and stuff like that. They've been around. Even if for they can't shapeshift, they might have like super tight, like sort of skin outfits that they would unzip, like their human body and like a reptile or whatever. Right. I they mean, may have yeah. already installed uh, augmented reality on all of us without us knowing in our sleep or something like that. Mm, yeah. But anyways, they want to prevent us from having self-determination in space by stripping our Earth, destroying our planet, making it so that we're basically reliant on their space Amazon when we join the intergalactic political field. So we become economically reliant on them. They save us sort of in the nick of time. Then they have us join their political faction and we've just become subordinate to this larger political world that we don't understand as economic subjects on the periphery of kind of like a intergalactic colonialism. Yeah, and one of the galling but strange, even kind of ironic things about this story is that there's actually a sort of socialist federation of planets that also exists that's in a political tension with this capitalist society. And they could, in theory, they see what's happening to us and they know that it's wrong, but they also have their own prime directive that they can't interfere with a developing society. So they're... Uh, as a political decision, deciding not to help us right now because they don't want to get involved. They don't want to violate their own values of non-interference. So sort of ironically, they're allowing us to be taken advantage of by this hyper-capitalist, neo-feudalist society because they're not being willing to be flexible with their principles in order to uh, do the right thing. It's, in our opinion, in this instance, the right thing would be to reveal to humanity all that's going on and give us the sort of democratic choice of what we want to do and where we want our resources to go. Yeah, especially because we suspect they actually know that there's interference going on and they've probably worked through like parliamentary committees, investigations, collected evidence and so on. They probably still collect evidence now even. But, you know, it always dies in committees because the, you know, the trade federation thing or whatever has like the votes to always quash it, that kind of thing. So they're all like proceduralist and they're all like, you know, trying to do things the right way. And as a result, it's constantly destroyed and killed in committee. So they watch this happen kind of knowingly as their power shrinks over time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's the main part of our presentation. Uh, moms, what do you think? Oh, I loved it. That Sweethearts, was, you did so good. I loved it. It I, was so I, I good. I think you, you might be onto something there. You might. I'm going to recommend to the whole family that they should have been here uh, and that they should come next time you're doing a presentation because, yeah, this is worth seeing. I'm so proud of both of you. I know only one of you is my son, but I'm proud of both no, of you. No, absolutely. I'm proud of both of you. I'm, although obviously you're not my son and I'm a different mother than yours, but 
she's she's here but mm. i'm proud of sean and I'm, what can i say i'm proud of aaron for this and not just as <laughs> not just as an audience member but as a mother and that was two adult sons explaining their theory on ufo visitation to their mothers in a garage although many others were invited So your new book, uh, your new science fiction book or social fiction book, with we call a fiction that has a, a moral political character to it on our show. I think that the idea that there is fiction that doesn't have a moral character to it is a little suspect, <laughs> but go on. A good moral character, uh, something we endorse. Okay. Oh, so, um, so it's uh, social fiction is uh, fiction with a message you like. Yes. <laughs> So The Lost Cause, for our listeners who uh, may not have heard of it, uh, what's The Lost Cause about? Yeah, so The Lost Cause is uh, a novel set after uh, Green New Deal when people are finally taking the climate emergency as seriously as it deserves. And so millions of people have been trained to do climate remediation from doing things like solarizing and insulating homes to moving whole coastal cities inland, building seawalls, providing care for tens and then hundreds of millions of displaced people whose homes have been destroyed by the climate emergency. All of these things become the kind of the daily round of lots and lots of people, it becomes the main project of millions of people and the orientation of our society. And all of this happens pretty quickly after a change in Canadian politics. There's this thing that, that is in the backstory of this called the Canadian Miracle, where the two major parties, the Conservatives and the Liberals, are set to uh, take one of them to take the election. And the NDP doesn't even stand to form the, the opposition. They're, they're, the, they're the third party, the Social Democratic Party, who are often quite weak sauce. And so they uh, just create a kind of glass cliff, as is so often the case in these circumstances. And that's the election cycle in which they let an indigenous woman lead the party into the election, assuming that she's going to lose because the party is, is doomed to lose. But then the other two parties implode because of their own problems. And she ends up being prime minister just as Calgary is once again flooded through these incredible, brutal floods that come over and over again because Calgary is built on a floodplain, and that's just like a legit bad idea. And so she says, hey, you know what? We're not rebuilding Calgary on the floodplain. We're rebuilding Calgary off the floodplain, and we're not doing any more building on the floodplain. And that kicks off round after round of big muscular interventions to do something about the climate emergency that then turns into this global movement. And so- Starting with the abolition of Calgary. Starting with, well, the relocation of Calgary. <laughs> There's the, it, We don't need to abolish Calgary. We merely need to tame it. Calgary's full of, uh, you know, the thing about the prairies, so that's the home of uh, socialism in Canada, oh, right? Yeah. Like, like, don't forget it, right? Like, they, you, know, you know, we think of them as like... I'm I, a Manitoba boy originally. There so, you uh, go. I, uh, so, I have family living in Calgary, so... Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, I mean, the point of that story, and I, I told that uh, I was in Calgary with my last book or with my last novel uh, on tour... And I mentioned this to the audience, right? Like my next novel opens with Calgary being destroyed and they all cheered, <laughs> <laughs> which was quite funny. Anyway, that the point isn't that we want to get rid of Calgary. The point is that we want to spare Calgarians from being flooded out and, you know, increasingly harmed every couple of years as we get yet another storm of the century, right? And the way that you do that isn't by like bargaining with the weather to stop flood, flooding Calgary. It's by moving Calgary out of the way, right? It was just a mistake to, to build in the floodplain. And so 
the book opens in the town where I live in Burbank, California, and it's this fun little town on the edge of Los Angeles. It has all the advantages of being in a big city without any of the disadvantages because it's its uh, its own political unit. And it's a 100,000 person city. It's great. I love it here. And uh, Brooks Palazzo is a 19 year, 18 year old who's about to graduate from Burroughs High. He's an orphan. His parents were in Canada during the Canadian miracle. They, they were part of the groups of, of Americans who went to Canada to be part of this, this revolution. And they had both died of a zoonotic plague uh, that was colloquially called uh, beaver fever. And these plagues are increasingly common all across the world. And they are, you know, killing more and more people with every year that goes by. And um, he's been raised by his right-wing reactionary grandfather. And he is living in this moment in which the presidential administration that created the New Deal, the Green New Deal in the United States, is on its way out. It's collapsing. And um, there's a new right-wing reaction that's come in. It turns out that when you defeat people who are on the wrong side of a just revolution, that they don't just go away. They, they keep trying. And so now we're in this new world. And he is no longer fighting to make a better world. He's fighting to keep the world that he had. And there's, there's two main factions that are building this. One is a, um, a group of white nationalist militias who've been sort of hiding since the political change came to America. And the other are these seagoing anarcho-capitalist wreckers who are basically LARPing a Neil Stevenson novel and who've built a, a sovereign state on aircraft carriers and, uh, and super yachts and uh, decommissioned cruise ships. And um, they sail around the world trying to convince people to adopt Bitcoin and throw off the terrors of social democracy. If I, if I can just say, sort of turning to the audience, doesn't that sound fun? Yeah. Doesn't this, uh, actually, yeah. I, I wanted to say actually um, about your fiction writing is I love the amount of sort of thought candy that you're able to stuff into things where there's, there's things alluded to and like... Just from this description here, I think people can get a taste of it. There's a lot of stuff going on in this book, and a lot of it, it sort of invites you as an audience member to think along with you. Not everything is always, there's times where things are mentioned and it like, gets my imagination going. I, I think it's like just an awesome uh, thing to do in oh, the format. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Joe jo Walton, the great Welsh-Canadian science fiction writer, she calls that incluing. You know, like rather than explaining how things go, you just drop these little clues, these breadcrumbs, and it sort of tickles the reader's pine brain and, and invites them to start piecing together these puzzle pieces that you're revealing in fragmentary ways. I quite like doing that. It's one of my favorite motifs of science fiction, for sure. Um, so that's the setup, right? They are now in this kind of fight for all the marbles. They're trying to figure out what to do with a counter-reformation. Uh, it's, it's quite violent. Uh, there's, you know, bombs and shootings and all kinds of bad stuff happening. And then uh, as against it, there's solidarity. And the uh, young people who have grown up in this world, they call themselves the first generation in a century that doesn't fear the future. But for the first time in their lives, they're starting to fear the future. They're starting to fear that maybe they won't be able to grab the wheel and swerve before we drive civilization over the cliff. Yeah, when I was reading it, I was really struck by how you said it in this near future situation that like, in a lot of ways is like, objectively horrifying. It's And it's horrifying, not just from what's happening, but from how real it seems like the escalation of the climate crisis, there's like, 
sort of a continual background and ongoing reminder of like how bad things have gotten like sections of the united states have been kind of like abandoned there's so many things going on there's this resurgent fascist movement and yet there's like these characters our main characters and movements that are like standing up and doing the right thing and like figuring it out and like the way that you can set a story in this world that's like horrifying but yet i still felt optimistic reading it i was like yeah we we could do this we could figure this thing out even even in a situation like this well i think a lot of climate despair comes about from the thought that not just that things are bad but that we're not going to do anything about it, right? I, I alluded to an analogy I've been using a lot lately, uh, which is the bus driving towards the cliff. And, and being on a bus that's driving toward a cliff is bad. Being on a bus driving toward a cliff where all the passengers in the front rows are saying there is no cliff is really bad. And even if you convince them that there is a cliff, when they start saying, well, it's too late now, we can't turn because if we swerve, we might roll the bus and someone could break their leg. Instead, we're just going to have to figure out how to like go so fast that we jump the canyon or maybe we'll like figure out how to put wheels on this bus while it's in motion or wings on this bus while it's in motion. Or maybe the cliff falling off the cliff won't be so bad and like it'll get rid of all the people who aren't any good or whatever. And that's where it's really horrifying. And like if we do manage to grab the wheel and make the bus swerve and some people break their legs, that's not going to be nice. Right. But the that would be like having like the manageable task of taking care of the people who were hurt when we finally stopped the bus is much better than being on the bus that's going to kill us all because it's going off the cliff. And and so they are in the ruins of the climate emergency, right? Like they're, they're, things are on fire. Cities are disappearing. There are, you know, huge pandemics sweeping the land. There are tens of millions of internal refugees in the United States, but they're doing something about it, right? They're just, they're not pretending that it'll all be fine, that they can argue with the weather. You know, they're, they're actually taking it as seriously as it deserves. Yeah, I thought it was funny too. Like the you describe the people at the front of the bus, not you're saying there is no cliff. Uh, you describe in the book like they're going around and rebuilding cities or areas that have been destroyed, and that like even the people who have just had their house destroyed by some natural disaster are still d- denying that there's a cliff, that there's climate change. But it's kind of like, uh, well, we got to help them anyway. This is you know this is what we got to do. Right. Well, and, you know, the people in the Central Valley of California, which like there are parts of it that are 30 feet lower than they were a century ago because they've drained the aquifer so much, think that the problem in the Central Valley is uh, like federal water management of the Colorado River and not that there's no water. Right. And And like, you know, you drive through the Central Valley, there are all these conspiratorial, you know, weird anti-Biden memes, you know, not that I'm the world's biggest Biden stand, but like, I don't think that Biden is the reason that there isn't water to grow almonds in the Central Valley, right? I think it's, it's like that the Colorado River is just basically drying up. And, you know, you, those people need to be helped too. And the fact that they are like living through the drought and refusing to confront it is tragic as well as in- infuriating. You mentioned before and the inspiration, partial inspiration for some of the ideas in this book coming from library socialism. Can you talk about what, where the connections are and, um, yeah, the story behind that? Well, look, I'm a, I'm a giant library stan. I worked in libraries as a kid. I was a page. I was a cataloger. It's my jam. And 
I love many things about libraries, not least that they are the last place in our society where you're valued for who you are and not what you have in your wallet. I mean, except for maybe a church. And uh, lots of people have observed that if you tried to start a, a library today, that they'd call you a communist, right? If libraries didn't exist and you tried to invent them, you'd be, you'd be stopped from doing it. And um, I am a great believer in material abundance and comfort. I like stuff. I'm a materialist. I like stuff. And I think that by having libraries as the kind of organizing principle of our society, we can have stuff and also have an environmentally sound world. So abundance is the uh, intersection of three forces. One is what we want. One is how much energy and, uh, and material it takes to make it. And one is how we coordinate it, right? So like, you, you know, everyone's familiar with like Buddhism or Mary Kondo saying like, one way to feel like you have abundance is to just want less. Define abundance as being less stuff. And sure, that's fine, right? As far as it goes. But there are other ways that we can have more stuff without breaking the uh, planetary boundaries. So one is like dematerializing the things that we use. There is a great Bank of Canada study where there are these Bank of Canada economists who collected old IKEA catalogs. And their partners said, you have to get those out of the garage, go do something with them. So they decided to use them as the basis for an economic study. And the, what they studied was the factors that predicted whether a single product would stay in the catalog from year to year. And what they found is that the products that Ikea keeps in its catalog from year to year get lighter and they have fewer countries of origin with every passing year. And so another way of saying that is that they have less embodied material energy and labor with every passing year in the same way that like a modern well-built home has just like a tiny fraction of the labor energy and materials that would go into building a home that enclosed the same amount of volume a century ago. And so another way to get more with less is to literally use less to make it. And that's something we can do with technology. But the third piece is the library socialism piece. And the third piece is coordinating how we use it. And a lot of us own a lot of things that we have no good damn reason to own, except that it's too hard to lay hands on it when we need it. And so my, my big example of this as a homeowner is my home drill. About twice or three times a year, I have to make a hole in a wall somewhere in my house. And it just doesn't make any economic sense for me to buy a good drill. Instead, I own a drill that I call the minimum viable drill. It's, it's a drill that was like 15 bucks at the hardware store. And the great miracle of it is that it doesn't fly apart into a shower of white hot shrapnel every time I use it. And owning that drill, using that drill, saving that drill, that is not a, a form of abundance or bounty. That is privation, right? The fact that I have to own it is bad. And it would be better if I didn't. In library socialism, we don't have to own this thing, right? In, in library socialism, you can just go to the library and get the drill. And it can be a better drill than any drill that we currently own. It can be one of the, one you know, like a, a drill that is of the sort that the most committed tradesman who has to do the most drilling would, would own if they, if, if they were going out with an unlimited budget to buy their drill. And that's an amazing thing, right? And under those circumstances, everybody gets the world's greatest drill, right? And, and so I try to imagine in The Lost Cause, a world in which they are seeking material abundance 
without breaking through the planetary boundaries. And there's a great fellow Canadian writer, Deborah Chakra, who's a material scientist and engineer, teaches at Olin College in Cambridge, whose first book is about to come out, and it's called How Infrastructure Works. And Deb makes this point that if we wanted to give every person on Earth the energy budget of a Canadian, and Canadians are like Americans, but colder, so we have the highest energy budget of anyone in the world. If you gave every person on Earth the energy budget of a Canadian, you would need to capture 0.4% of the solar rays that reach the planet. Not that reach our outer atmosphere, but that actually penetrate our atmosphere. So effectively nothing. So energy is basically infinite and materials are finite. And we have spent most of human civilization acting like energy is finite and material is infinite, like we can use things once and throw them away, even though fresh supplies of materials only arrive when a comet survives entry into the Earth's atmosphere, and fresh supplies of energy come every time the sun or the moon rises. And if you can imagine trading energy for material, right, trading computation for material, then you can imagine a world in which we have lots and lots of stuff at our disposal that's mediated by networks that allows us to lay hands on the things that we need when we need them, that gathers telemetry from them so that every time they're reinstantiated, they're better, more durable, easier to use, less confusing, and that are designed to gracefully decompose back into the material stream, even though that might be energy intensive, both to make and to unmake, because materials are limited and energy is abundant. And that's the world that they're working towards. They haven't quite got there, but that's the world they're working towards in that novel. And for this book, you're doing a Kickstarter for the audiobook version, which you've done for a number of your recent books. And my understanding of this, and you can explain further, is that Amazon owes you $3,218.55. Um, <laughs> so why, why aren't you on Audible? Uh, what, how does Audible connect yeah. to uh, you know, the larger discussion we've had today? So I, I discussed earlier that there was this law passed in the United States in 1998 and then mirrored around the world that makes it a crime to reverse engineer anything that has a digital lock. And Audible uses these digital locks called digital rights management on every audiobook that's sold, whether or not the author wants it. And they, they say that this is to protect us. They say it's an anti-piracy measure, but we don't get to choose whether or not we have it. And they, it is mandatory for every product that they sell. Audible is Amazon's audiobook division. They control over 90% of the market. And so they are, by any account, a monopolist. And by forcing every creator who sells through their store to use digital rights management, they lock every product sold through their store to their platform, which means that as an audience member, if you decide that you don't want to keep using their service, you have to be prepared to give up all the audiobooks that you bought, right? If you stop using the apps that Audible supplies, you lose access to all the Audible audiobooks that you bought over all of that time. So that's a, that is a brutal choice to have to make. And under those circumstances, lots and lots of people are willing to put up with Audible even as it gets worse. So Audible is now talking about putting ads and audiobooks, and they've done all kinds of things to enshittify the lives of audiobook subscribers. But of course, they also enshittify the lives of audiobook creators. So there's something called Audiblegate that shows that um, Audible has stolen more than $100 million from independent audiobook creators through a, a kind of fancy accounting that really just boils down to wage theft. And so it's only because it has this lock-in that they are able to make all of this money and do all these uh, harmful things to both end users and suppliers, creative workers. 
And as a result, I refuse to sell my work with digital rights management. And that means that Audible, which controls 90% of the market, refuses to carry any of my work. And this is a hugely consequential choice on their and my part. My agent says that if I were to soften this posture, I could have made enough money to uh, pay off my entire mortgage and give my kid a full ride scholarship to uh, the many fine and extremely expensive universities here in the United States where I now live. But it's not worth it to me. It's not worth it to me to endure that hardship or to impose that hardship on my readers. And so instead, what I do is I kickstart my audiobooks. I make them myself. I sell them everywhere that isn't audible which are some really good stores, but unfortunately not stores that anyone knows about or shops in for the most part, although I can tell you about them and maybe you can think about shopping at them after you've heard this this podcast. One of them is Libro.fm and then there's Downpour.com. Kobo has a DRM optional store. Even Google Play doesn't require you to use DRM in their store. And so if authors choose not to put DRM, they're sold DRM free in the store. And because people who subscribe to Audible, which is nearly everyone who listens to audiobooks, don't even understand that there are other stores, it means that when your books aren't available on Audible, people just assume that they don't exist, which is why these Kickstarters are so important. They're a way to pre-sell the book before it comes out, because generally after the book's uh, initial publicity fades and people stop encountering this message that you can get the book as an independent book, the sales drop off a cliff. But it also means that grifters use Audible's self-serve platform to put up illegal versions of the audiobook. And, and there's this self-serve platform Audible operates called the Audible Content Exchange, or ACX, that allows people who, who own the rights to audiobooks to uh, contract with narrators to narrate those audiobooks and then split the proceeds with them. So you don't even have to pay the narrator to do the narration. These people go in and they fill this gap that's left by the fact that my books aren't available and they falsely claim that they have the rights to my audiobooks. They trick narrators into putting hundreds of hours into recording and editing the audiobook, and then they list it for sale. And when I catch them at it and rat them out to Amazon, Amazon takes the audiobook down, but I don't get the money that they collected for my audiobook that they put up illegally. Audible just keeps all that money. And so at last count, there was one audiobook that went up and they made, as you said, a little over $3,000 from having this unlawful edition of my book created by this grifter with Amazon's help. I've got one last question for our wonderful sure. audience. Um, I've noticed something uh, about you, Corey, which is that you are an incredibly prolific writer. Uh, you've written, to my count, was it six or seven books since the pandemic started that have been published? Oh, I, I have eight books in train. So I, it's it's um, it's five. This Lost Cause will be four. And then The Bezel, which comes out in February, will be five. But after that, there's a graphic novel, another novel, and a short story collection. And I think I've got a two-volume essay collection that I'm going to release as well. So it might be 10 books since the pandemic. Right. So there's there's writers, and then there's writers. And I consider myself in one <laughs> of those categories. How do, how, do you, how do you do it? How do you sit down and write that much? Because there's, you know, I think a lot of, for myself, and I think for a lot of listeners, we have stories within us, thoughts within us that we like to think that we will someday share how how do you how do you how do you do it i i genuinely like i'm blown away by it and it's very impressive but also do you have a secret that you can share with me that will help me magically do this i mean yes and no so part of my secret is that i write when i'm anxious right so i work out my anxieties on the page i've had chronic pain for most of my life 
And uh, the way that I distract myself from chronic pain is by working. And the same goes for any kind of emotional trauma I'm going through. Like basically, if I'm working, I'm not paying attention to my feelings, whether those are physical or emotional. And so during lockdown, for very obvious reasons, I did a hell of a lot of writing. And it was a great way for me to not have to pay attention to all the bad things in my life. Uh, as my friend Joey Davila says, when life gives you SARS, you make sarsaparilla. And um, as to the mechanics of how you do it, I mean, there's a lot of different little bits and pieces. The, the key realization, the thing that makes it possible to write on demand, to write whenever you have time instead of when the muse takes you, is this realization I came to partway through, I guess, my, my second book, maybe, where I realized that although there were days where I felt like I was writing really well and days where I felt like I was writing really poorly, and although there was work that objectively seemed good or bad in, in retrospect, that they were unrelated, that the predictor of whether I, I was writing something that, that I felt good about was like my blood sugar and whether I was fighting with my wife and whether you know I had slept well and whether my day job as an activist was going well or whether I was getting my ass kicked. And so I just came to this realization that although the stuff felt maybe felt terrible, it might be fine. And so I was able to just write it even though it felt terrible and then later on go back and figure out whether it was terrible and if it was how to fix it. And it seems very simple, but it is very hard, right? It's basically the core of, of um, cognitive behavioral therapy, to feel a feeling, to acknowledge that the feeling is real, but to understand that the thing that the feeling makes you think is going on in the world is not true, and to act as though it's not true despite all the feelings to the contrary. It's, it's hard graft, right? In terms of like mechanical stuff, writing every day is huge. Write every day is like the best advice I didn't follow for, you know, the first 15 years that I was writing, where I just person after person told me that. And I thought that they were kidding. I thought that it was write every day was advice like, um, you know, get five helpings of vegetables every day or do an hour of cardio every day. It's like something you would do if you had like a trainer and a chef, but not that any like normal person would do. And it turns out that if you write every day, it becomes a habit. And as you'll discover, as you raise your baby there, habits are things you get for free, right? You're going to spend a lot of time trying to convince your baby to brush their teeth. And then at a certain point, you're not going to have to do that because they're just going to have a complete like unconscious habit where it's just going to happen automatically every morning and it's, and, and you're not going to have to do anything about it. And, you know, I, uh, that's how I feel about writing, right? Once it became a habit, it became a thing that I do automatically. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that, uh, that insight into your process and yeah, that's really interesting. Well, uh, Everyone, this has been Corey Doctorow. If you're interested in the arguments around tech and monopoly and interoperability, the new book, The Internet Con, is excellent, available on Verso. And if you're interested in checking out that fiction work or helping kickstart the audiobook version of The Lost Cause, uh, we'll have a link in the description. Thanks again, Corey, for coming on. This has been a great discussion. Thank you very much. And if you go to lost-cause.org, you can uh, see the Kickstarter. And then once the Kickstarter is done, I'll just move that to the page to get the book. And we'll just pop out that tape. Lights are on. Private Moritz, how are you feeling? Is your mind still rattled by the torturous pangs of mind war? Absolutely not. No, I'm healed. That was great. That was what a great episode. All of my deep scars from being a mind war wiped away it's like they never existed that is what we like to hear 
That's so effective. Man, I feel so good. You know what that makes me want to do now that I feel like I have my whole life ahead of me again and my just I've been given this gift of a second chance. I want to go back to Mind War again, get traumatized, and then come back here to be untraumatized again so I can listen to another great episode of Seriously Wrong next week with a new great guest. Well, actually, did you know that you can access all episodes of Seriously Wrong at patreon.com slash seriously wrong you don't have to go to mind war in the alpha centauri system to fight for the vibrant arts and culture districts of proxima centauri b a planet which has a permanent day and permanent night on different sides of the planet you can just go to patreon.com slash seriously wrong if i'm not mistaken doesn't that cost six dollars per month to get access to the full archive of all bonus episodes uh, yes, but there are many free episodes as well that can be accessed also at seriouslywrong.com or on your podcasting apps. Yeah, I think I'm just going to go back to Mind War. It's the way I already know how to access the episode. I'm not sure if it would be as good if I wasn't being untortured, you know? Well, I'm here on behalf of the military, so I'm all in favor of churning as many young men through the grinder as possible to achieve our geopolitical aim so i won't stop you great 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 i thought i'd woken up being untortured by a seriously wrong podcast patreon salesman happy that's not the case i uh, know that was my job that connected me to this job over time so i've, I've built my way up to yeah, you're kind of both right? the head of okay. intergalactic trauma department of the intergalactic military fighting for alpha centauri and the mind wars but i actually started as a lowly seriously wrong patreon salesman but i put my head down and i worked hard and hmm. you know there's challenging aspects but at the same time i'm happy all the same that here i am on this space station orbiting mars oh we're orbiting mars right now i should go to the memorial oh yeah the moon workers the great memorial mars explosion palace. Yeah. yeah it's i know a lot of people who died in that explosion so it'll be good to pay my respects before i head back to mind war but yeah no that's fascinating about your life everyone's got a story you know yeah, I guess old habits die hard because I can't help but sort of rattle the cup, as it were. I mean, it's obviously proven to have a therapeutic application. Right. But, um... Yeah, no, I get it. And I, yeah, I don't begrudge you it at all. I'm just, well, I'm going to take you. advantage of the military's subscription for Seriously Wrong, rather than getting my own. Yeah, yeah, by going, by going back to the Alpha Centauri system to... Yeah, to fight Mind War. With the um, genetically bioengineered consciousness soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my mind war is hell, as they say. But I guess that's why I was so traumatized when I got here. It, it gets worse than that. There's We see worse trauma than that every day. Sometimes oh, people really? have to listen to two episodes of Seriously Wrong, which is actually convenient because they do have two interviews with Cory Doctorow. Right. Uh, so if people want to just have that continuity, but they also have many other guests as well, or episodes by themselves where they don't have any guests. And They're all equally as therapeutic. Is it kind of like a personality-based thing, like a Myers-Briggs, like one personality type for yeah, one episode. Yeah, there's an art to or, it. You right, know, when yeah. someone comes in, they're traumatized from mind war. And then as a physician, you're saying which episode is seriously wrong right. is going to be the right fit for this person to have efficiency and use of, of time and, you know, to maximize healing. Is there anybody who's had to listen to every episode from the beginning, start to finish in order to be healed? Or is that just too much healing for any one person? Usually it's actually a much smaller dose that has a right. that immediate effect. Right. Yeah, it was immediate for me. It was just one episode. Yeah, just one interview. And I mean, you you actually just seem ready for mind war. Like you, I just want to. I almost want to slap a helmet on you and just 
kick you into a jet heading for the Alpha Centauri system. Please, please do. And we'll be seeing you back soon and treating your trauma with another great episode of Seriously Wrong. I'm a medical doctor, and yeah, it's 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 a life, and you know, I hope to meet someone someday, but I can't. I don't have a lot of time, but. I would say I'm feeling good overall about my place here in the orbit of Mars. So I want to thank you for going to Mind War for all of us because you're a hero. It's fascinating how we've lived such different lives and we're two such different people, but yet our paths have crossed here in the trauma rehabilitation center for Mind War. And that, like, I don't know, it just gets you thinking about people of different lives. They have these whole different lives to you, and you just pop into their life for a moment and then you're gone and then yeah it's great to meet you and i just i hope you have a great mind more and yeah and i hope you find whatever you're looking for in your life that oh well thank you well career fulfillment relationship helping fulfillment. people is great yeah yeah i want it all for you well if you just uh we'll shake hands i guess and send you on your way here's sure, your, yeah. your helmet and yeah here's your gun and i guess back to the alpha centauri system for you for another series of skirmishes for the exoplanets. And so the untraumatized war veteran returned to Mind War, and the mildly dissatisfied trauma doctor, who used to work as a seriously wrong Patreon salesman, continued to listlessly do his work with the hollow affect of a defeated person. The end. And that's that. My first novel. Wow, Cory Doctorow really is right. You just need to write every day and write whether you feel good about what you're writing or not. Hey, buddy, what did you think of my story? Uh, well, I think as a novel, it has some issues. I mean, you can't just put an entire seriously wrong podcast episode in the middle of your story and then write little bookend fragments for it and then say that you wrote a story. Like, the plot and characters of that book are really underdeveloped because so much of the runtime has been devoted to transcribing that seriously wrong and Cory Doctorow interview. Jeez, I was kind of looking for support here, but I guess yeah, it's a bit too much to well, ask for you to believe you in me. You asked me what I thought. You asked me what I thought. You weren't like, oh, give me some support. It's just I part mean, of the story I wanted to write was that they listened to that podcast, so it has to be in there. You don't have to transcribe the entire episode and devote most of the runtime. It's important to the arc. Yes, whatever. It's fine. Maybe it's just not for you. No, I think there's actually an objective storytelling problem there, like as a novel, mm, and I'm just saying that as a friend. Fine, whatever, yeah. Wow, I've just been listening to Seriously Wrong tapes in my off time between treating patients on this medical space station orbiting Mars, and I realized something while listening to this one. I don't want to be a listless and defeated person, going about the motions, doing work that I don't really want to do. I can't be isolated up in this med bay forever. I want to actually achieve my dreams. Hey, boss, this is Chandler from Med Bay. I'm quitting. Instead, I'm going to follow my dreams of going back to Earth and being a polyamorous breakdancer. And then I'm going to open a series of margarine restaurants that are themed after fascinating people who came in second place. Yeah, no, that always... Yes, that always has been my dream. Well, it was. Well, I don't... Not that you ever asked. What, a, a cool guy's not allowed to have a cool dream anymore? Oh, fuck you. You know what? I treat so much trauma in this med bay for you, for mine war. You know, you got a lot of nerve saying that to me, buddy, after everything I've done. Well, I don't care about whether you like margarine. That is, that's a judgmental co You know what? I'm glad. I
And that was the moment I decided to open the margarine restaurants themed after people who came in second place. A sort of building on the idea that margarine is considered a second place food, but the second pla people who come in second place are fascinating characters and it might make you take a second look at margarine. Ah, uh, and now that I've told my story and relayed all the details of that one seriously wrong interview with Cory Doctorow to the, the children across the land and the new cradle of humanity via outpost radio on the ocean settlements of L9859D, I can finally die here in peace at the age of 318, which is exactly the average age people die now. <sighs> And that was the polyamorous breakdancing founder of our wonderful restaurant's life story, including all the details of a podcast he once shared with a medical patient. The end. I love you all. See you soon. <laughs>